Welcome back to Ghostly Talk. This is Scott L. This is Amber. Oh, you're in for it tonight. Oh, yeah. We're we're talking. I'm really excited about tonight's topic because it's never been talked about before. I never. Yeah. This I, is I, an exclusive. Well, it's I. We've never talked about it on the show. I I have, I've been researching the paranormal for a long time. I've never heard the story. Yeah. About uh, Shepton, Pennsylvania, and this mining disaster that happened to these, uh, particularly these two guys, because one guy died. And Dead. the kind of paranormal, the, well, the paranormal experiences that they had during this yeah. moment, <clears throat> down in a pit for two weeks. You don't know if you're going to get saved. You're in total pitch black. The air quality's bad. The temperature's low. I don't it's just anxiety. Well, and we mention when when we later on in the show when we bring Maxim on, we talk about there's some there's some moments right now that are making people think. Like I'll just briefly say the Titanic submersible that it just happened a couple days. Just happened. Well, it's, it's, it's yeah. happening right now as yeah. we're recording this. We're recording can this on the twentieth of June. Can 2020 you imagine? Yeah. Going down. First off, the Titanic wreck is disturbing already. It's creepy. It's eerie. And then you're going down. I don't even know if they could see it yet from where, I mean, you're an hour and 45 minutes down. So I don't even know what the um, clarity of the water from would be. From what I understand, and I mean, I haven't read too much on this. It's been, and it's so, from what I understand, though, the, the machine that they used for these people. First off, the people that were going down there paid $250,000 yes. a head. Yes. So these are people with money, obviously. So Actually, and, and one article I read said what? people have mortgaged their house to pay you know for what? this experience. And in all transparency, if I... Well, see, I'm a bit more, I'm a, I'm a bit more uh, paranoid than other people yeah. are. Um, you remember the monster truck thing <laughs> when I tried to, I was going to drive the monster yeah. truck with that guy and he wouldn't give me the paperwork. Yeah, and you backed out. And you I backed like, out. No. I'm like, well, no, I'm not going to be on the hook for this. It's a quarter million dollar machine. Yeah, I'm this like, thing's going to set on fire and I'm going to be if in If I it. roll it over and break it, I yeah. don't want to be responsible for it. And he wouldn't, yeah. he wouldn't play ball. So that point saying, and, that, and that's just for somebody else's property. How about my own safety, right? Yeah. Um, I would like personally nothing better than to have an opportunity to get into a submersible and go underwater and look at the Titanic. I've I've been fascinated with the Titanic well before the stupid movie came out twenty something years ago. Also, uh, it's it, it's I think there's not too many people that aren't fascinated with no. the, with the with with the, with the ship itself and what happened to the ship. But I'm ultimately. good with pictures and YouTube videos. I, I, I think it'd be, I, I think it would be amazing to see it with my own eyes. However, I'm good. if I was going to be First off, spending that kind of money. Yeah. Um, I would be doing some serious due diligence to make sure that my life would be protected. We have cats yelling at the door. Why don't you let them in? Amber? Okay. Um, I personally would be doing some very serious due diligence to make sure my life is protected. From what I understand, uh, the person who owned this machine, this was not exactly the greatest machine ever built I... for this kind of work. Now and also they didn't have a tether on the machine. So that's what weird. There's me no out. tether on the machine. Why? That's, that's and that's because all these. I mean, there's been one documentary after another documentary on this. On the you know, there's been people going down to look at the Titanic and, yeah. and bring stuff back or whatever. And that's you know that's common sense. I'm yeah. not a marine biologist. I'm not some marine expert. But it seems to me that you're going to put a tether on the thing. So if somebody gets in trouble, pull them you, back you, up. Well, yeah, or you can at least at least you know where they're at. Right. Like you can locate them. What I understand now is they lost contact with with this vessel and they can't find them. So they may have got caught up in the wreckage of the boat. You don't know what happened. Well, and they, they could said, be inside the boat now. For they all we said know. that they scanned an area the size of Connecticut so far and haven't found anything. And there is the possibility that this thing could have gone back to the surface, but then 
the ocean's really big. So well, at least they could get some air. I would hope they would get if, if I mean, they could open. I mean, I don't know how how contained it is. Like if they can't even open anything I, I don't, from the that's inside. That's what I don't know. I guess the inside is about the size of a minivan. Well, that's not horrible. That's not great. Nothing's no. great. I mean, and be there anyway, with, with four but, or five other people, you don't. know. So when or, we're talking ugh. about this experience in Shepton, that's anxiety. It's just all anxiety, man. And oh. and the things that these guys experienced while down in this mine. Yeah, these guys got to be having like a. Like a paranormal moment down at the potentially either either chilling next to Titanic, looking at that, going, "Well, cool, yeah, we're we're going down with the Titanic." Um, they got to be having a come to Jesus moment, like sitting on that wherever they are, if they're even still alive. I they might be because I the last it was earlier this day they said they had forty hours of oxygen left. So I don't, I you know, and I've talked about this before, and this is another one of those situations. I know every year that I get older. I, I think about my mortality personally, and I, and I think a lot more about, about death in a different sense than, than the paranormal or weird stuff of just the experience of it. Or you start thinking about, well, okay, technically we all are living on borrowed time no matter what. Uh, it's just a matter of how it's going to happen to you. And I guess the older you get, you start thinking about those things. And you're going to really start thinking about those things if you're stuck in a submersible underwater or you're stuck in a mine shaft like we're talking about. You're going to really be thinking about your mortality. You're going to be thinking about what you did with your life. You're going to be thinking a lot about a lot of things, I think. So, yeah, it's yeah. it's it's a lot of emotions. And we cover a lot of that stuff tonight. It's really cool. Yeah, we, we, talk had, to? we had a fun conversation with Maxim Furyk. Um, and I I got his book in my hand, cool Coal guy. Region cool Hoodoo, guy. Paranormal Tales from Inside the Pit. And a little bit yeah. about Maxim. He's got an eclectic background, which includes aspects of psychology, addictions, and rock journalism. He has a master's degree in communications from Bloomsburg University mm. and a bachelor's degree in psychology from Aquinas College, which is in Grand Rapids, Michigan. Yes. He is an avid researcher of contemporary drug trends and psychosocial aspects of the drug culture. He has written numerous articles for both addictions and rock publications. His books include The Jordan Brothers, Rock's Fortunate Sons, the Death Proclamation of Generation X, a self-fulfilling prophecy of goth, grunge, and heroin, which traces the origins of the current opiate epidemic. Mm. And Shepton, which we're talking about tonight, The Myth, Miracle, and Music. So if you like this topic, he has written another book about it. Yeah. That probably goes into even more depth than what he has in Coal Region Hoodoo. So please enjoy this conversation with Maxim Furek. book coal region hoodoo paranormal tales from inside the pit by maxim Furick, who is going to be our guest tonight and one of the stories that was in the book right in the beginning had to do with a mining disaster in shepton pennsylvania uh in 1963 in august and i had never heard of it ever have you heard of it scott 
No. No. And, of course, it has a bunch of things that happen to the minors that are paranormal related, which we're going to be talking about tonight. But yeah. it got me thinking there's been a lot of weird things in the news lately that have made me wonder how I would react and what would happen to my psyche if I was in a situation like this. Like one, there was about like a few weeks ago, there was four girls that got lost in the Colombian jungle. And we're talking ages one to 13. Mm-hmm. And the 13 year old guided her siblings through the jungle for like 30 days and they got out. They got rescued. Although They thought they were gone. So just to think at that age, how you would react, what you would do, your survival skills. Then second, recently in the news, too, there is the submersible that just that happened, went, that this, just or just happened over the weekend this weekend or something. Yeah. that went missing. Now, people can pay yeah. $250,000 a trip to get killed to go into this <laughs> tiny five person submersible to go and view the wreck of the Titanic. So they lost, I think, communication after an hour and a half. And it takes two and a half hours to do a slow dive down to the wreck. And they're on a massive search to find these people. And the last thing I heard today was they have about 40 hours of oxygen left. So, again, being in this tight, confined space with five other people, what is going through their minds? What are they experiencing? Um, Just mind-boggling. And then we'll talk about it maybe a little, maybe in our intro. But if anyone out there has seen the show um, Yellow Jackets – I won't do a spoiler. Oh, oh, I'm not man. I'm not going to do a spoiler. Yeah. But if you know what I'm talking oh, about, man. it's on Showtime. I'll just say briefly, Dude. some a group of a soccer high school soccer team gets dumped in the remote wilderness somewhere after a plane crash mm-hmm. and they're not rescued for 18 months and this show kind of documents what they go through also with that supernatural theme running through it. <clears throat> and it made me think about what I'm capable of. Or just what, what, how would I react? So yeah. when I was reading Coal Region Hoodoo, mm-hmm. I came across this story, which is prevalent in the book about the, the Shepton mine disaster. Yeah, yeah. So I really, we got to bring on Maxim right now. Yeah. And we got to start talking about this. But first, welcome to the show, Maxim. Well, thank you, uh, Amber and Scott. Thank you for having me. And I'm just so excited to be uh, able to talk to, to you and to your listeners. So this is, this is exciting. So It's really great so to have you. you on. Thanks for taking the time to talk to us. And I, I love to get everyone's origin story. So, of course, we have to discuss you first. And <laughs> you started out as a rock journalist. And now you've been researching the paranormal. Your latest book is all about the paranormal. So I got to know, what drew you into researching paranormal subjects versus, like, your previous rock journalist uh, stuff? Yeah. Well, it, it wasn't really me. You know, I mean, uh, I mean, thanks for giving that, me that kind, of, that kind of credit. But uh, <laughs> I sort of I got drawn into it. You know, I'm a, I'm a uh, rock journalist or a former rock journalist. And all of my books that I've published, uh, you know, were uh, were about, uh, you know, taking a look at uh, the culture of music, the culture of rock and roll and trying to validate it and make sense of it. You know, because music has always been uh, transformative. Uh, you know, uh, using music for civil rights and Vietnam and just so many uh, women's rights, just so many issues have used used music as a theme, as a focal point, as a uh, a source of motivation. And so um, I wrote a number of books and then uh, I was writing a book, uh, uh, Rock Mythology. And what I was trying to do is this, um, and I'm from Northeastern Pennsylvania, our highest 
charting song. And I know you're from the Detroit area. And so you have like a billion, you know, uh, people that have been in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame and mm -hmm. you're just wonderful people. But um, we had a group called The Boys, B-U-O-Y-S. And they had a song called Timothy that hit the charts in 1971. So Timothy was the highest charting song from any rock group from Northeastern Pennsylvania. So as a rock aficionado, uh, and as a rock journalist and a music critic, I decided to write a book about this. So I, all I wanted to do was make the connection between the 1971 song, Timothy, which was about cannibalism in a mine shaft, and the real life 1963 Shepton mining disaster, where three guys were entombed for two weeks, only two came out, and the uh, villagers wanted to know what happened to the third guy. And there were horrible and un unsubstantiated allegations of cannibalism. So as I was researching the 63 Shefton mine disaster, I came upon all these paranormal themes. And for example, just from the top, themes of out-of-body experiences, near-death experiences, and after-death experiences plus a whole lot more. So what I say and what I contend is that I didn't go looking for the paranormal, but it found me and I just got sort of pulled into it. So in 2015, the last day of 2015, I published Shepton, the Myth, uh, Miracle and Music, which opened up the doors to the paranormal realm for me. I just can't tell you how what that, what that did for mm -hmm. my career as a paranormal uh, uh, author. And then I followed up with Coleridgean Hoodoo, Paranormal Tales from Inside the Pit, which has really taken off. I mean, it's just like blowing up. And even today, it was number 25 on Amazon's top 100 in the paranormal sciences. Number nice. 25. Now that's, nice. that's, I know, I, I can't believe it. You know, so, <laughs> so, so again, I didn't go looking for the paranormal, but it found me. And, uh, you know, I found an audience, I found my demographic, I found my voice. And, you know, I mean, I'm just excited about this, you know, talking to you folks on Ghostly Talk and just being able to go and articulate my research at Shepton and, yeah. you know, so uh, it's exciting stuff. And I just, I don't know, I, I, there's a lot of different ways to look at it, but, you know, I'm, I feel like maybe I've been chosen, you know, maybe, uh, maybe that's part of it. I don't know. Well, you know, and if I may go off script for a second here, um, one thing I've noticed after all these years of studying this weird stuff, um, Amber and I have a background in a lot of rock stuff. We're both old, we're both old metalheads, and I found that yeah. a lot of um, a lot of the people that I've interacted with in this field, a lot of us are cut from the same stone. A okay. lot of a lot of us come from music backgrounds or artistic backgrounds or specifically rock music and stuff like that. I've, the more people I've met in the paranormal field or community, it's always been like, oh, you like that band? Oh, I love that band. And we find out we have a lot more in common besides the fact that we're into weird stuff. So I think there is a relation. Uh, and we've talked about it a lot on this show, uh, Max, and where, you know, with, especially with rock music, especially heavy metal music, you know, there's that mysticism 
within the yeah, music yeah. itself. I mean, a lot of heavy metal music deals with the paranormal. I mean, Christ, yeah, yeah. King Diamond, Merciful Fate, those are two examples right there. All he, all he does is tell ghost stories over yeah, and over yeah, again, yeah. right? Yeah. So, maybe all of them. Yeah, maybe all of them. You're right. Yeah, you're going to say Iron Maiden. I'm like, well, hell yeah, Iron Maiden too. <laughs> but, no, I was saying maybe yeah. all of us collectively, yeah. you know, are more left brain. Maybe we go that way, you know, that artistic, sensitive, yeah. creative thing. Maybe that's it. Maybe that's part of it. Maybe that's part of the paranormal, you know, I, Absolutely. I, and I have no doubt about that. There is there is some relation there, I think. Oh, 100 percent. There's a lot of musicians that will say when they wrote like a hit song, they just they dreamt it or it was almost like it was downloaded into them. They just heard something. They they experienced it in sort of a, a mystical sense and got it down and boom, they share it with the world. And, and it's massive. It's part of our part of our planet now. Mm-hmm. And they mm-hmm. don't know yeah. where it necessarily came from. Yeah, yeah. yeah I remember. Um... Bob Dylan was being interviewed on CBS. It was the Sunday, other Sunday TV magazine. And they were asking him about what inspired him, you know, songs like Mr. Tambourine Man. And he looked out there in the distance. He was real pensive. And he said that he just felt that something was channeled through him. It was like another yeah. energy. Yep. Something was channeled through him and everything just worked. Everything it was just like uh, all the gods smiled on him. The winds were at his back and everything else. It just you know, everything worked. So. Now, with Cold Region Hoodoo, and when we were talking about the Shepton mine disaster, you mentioned that there was three books, several documentaries that explored this, but it's still not a well-known story. And for me, having researched a ton of stuff for decades in the paranormal, this whole thing has never crossed my radar. Because as yeah. I'm reading about this, which we'll get into um, you know, as, a, as the show goes on, yeah. all of the experiences these two guys had because um the three guys well the the two that survived david felon and henry hank throne were the two guys that survived and experienced a lot of the strange stuff while in this cave for two weeks and unfortunately lewis bova was the one that didn't make it out alive uh where yeah we got to talk about that too the whole kind <laughs> yeah. of like cannibalism possibility yeah, yeah. um oh. But well, what? So I, I got to know why is this not such a uh, why is this kind of a, a, a well kept secret? I guess in the realm well, of the well, paranormal. Well, 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 let me ask answer your question with a question. Um, so Scott Naber, I'm sure you're familiar with the 2010 Chilean copper mine disaster. Yeah, I remember yeah. that. Mm-hmm. And there was a movie called The 33. Mm-hmm. Okay, so 33 people are trapped there for I don't know something like 40 some days, but. What happened was they were rescued using technology that was developed in Shepton in 1963. Shepton Rescue Technology. Now, it's in my book, and when you go out there, I was just out in Shepton today, uh, had some business there, but I drove out there to the to the site of the, uh, the disaster, and there's a sign that was put up there by the Pennsylvania Department of, I don't know, historical, whatever, and it uh, 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 attributes the Shepton Rescue Technology for having saved people in 2002 in a Pennsylvania disaster called Q Creek and also in 2010, the Chilean copper mine disaster. Now, I go around trying to tell the world that it's our technology from the coal region of northeastern Pennsylvania that saved those people. But in every single book or article that I've read about uh, the Chilean copper mine disaster, the movie that I've seen, I mean, they don't give us credit. They don't give our uh, rescue team credit for what we did. 
But I mean, that's the reality. That's what happened. And so you tell me, I mean, why is it that the world knows about the movie, The 33, and they know about the Chilean copper mine disaster, but they don't know that it was Shepton Rescue Technology. And go ahead and Google this. Go Google the hell out of this. But Shepton Rescue Technology from 63 from my book that saved those guys. So right. I don't know. I don't know why that is, but it, it frustrates me. It angers me. Uh, you know, I try to tell the world uh, about this because it's a, a thing of honor and respect, you know, that we did this. You know, we rescued those people, but, yeah. <laughs> you know, but nobody knows. Uh, anyway. And wasn't how was it? Was it uh, what's his name? Howard Hughes? Yeah. That actually donated like some of the equipment to help get this thing created and save the men. Yeah, there were uh, a number of incredible players in this thing. Howard Hughes was the billionaire from uh, Houston, Texas, and uh, Shepton was outside of Hazleton, Pennsylvania. So uh, Hughes uh, sent a couple of uh, uh, tungsten drill bits by Navy jet. They flew to the Hazleton airport, and then they transported those to Shepton. But, I mean, it was those bits that helped dig down through the 330 feet of rock and stone and everything else just to get to those guys. So, yeah, Howard Hughes was one of the players in this, you know, as were a number of other people. But, uh, you know, um, Shepton is, uh, is an amazing account of human survival. And as a former psychologist and as an addictions counselor, I try to write about that through a psychological lens. And I just imagine being trapped down there, you know, 330 feet uh, underground, a constant temperature of maybe 52, 53 degrees, uh, crawling on your hands and knees like a dog on all fours, sucking in coal dust and dirt and uh, bleeding and hurting and having no hope of being rescued. I mean, that's that has to be the most horrendous thing. Yeah. No hope of being rescued. And then Dave Fallon, who was the older guy, Fallon was 58 years old, Throne was 28, and Fallon was like the, the John Wayne, the strong, courageous dude. But he was getting really disappointed because he thought that after so many days, the rescue team should have reached them. They should have gotten down and gotten them, and it wasn't happening. And he was really, really getting uh, very frustrated and anger. But, you know, how does one survive under all of those conditions? And it kept on changing. I mean, the um, there would be rushes, uh, the uh, collapses. They called them rushes, but they were in an area that might have been as big as a football field. Some places they, could, they had to crawl on their hands and knees. Other places they could stand and walk, but it was pitch black, pitch black. And uh, just an amazing account of human survival that was international news for two weeks. They had uh, thousands of people there at the site, the uh, National Guard, the Army, the military, Salvation Army, uh, paparazzi, uh, rubberneckers, <laughs> you know, uh, hoax hoaxers, hoaxers saying that they were doctors and uh, healers and everything else. I mean, you always get that. You get the bizarre. Uh, they had a guy that said he was a uh, a medical guy. He was passing out protein bars. Uh, you had military people there who were experts on um, the um, uh, bomb, the um, what do you call the people that would have the bomb shelters. So they were doing an experiment to find out how these uh, minors, how these people would would uh, uh, react, you know, mm -hmm. uh, under these conditions and everything. So there were a whole lot of things happening there, 
plus the uh, uh, news uh, reporters from the United Kingdom, Japan, and Germany. So it was an international story. It was the, one of the top stories of 1963, according to the Associated Press, surpassed only by the assassination of uh, President John Kennedy. Oh, wow. In in uh, in November of sixty three, so so a lot of things happening there in sixty three. Well, and so how were these guys ultimately rescued? They they, I mean they they had to like dig some kind of shaft to bring them up. And I remember reading that they had to grease them up just to get them get them through this tunnel. I mean, is that yeah. is that basically they just hook them up on a harness and kind of boom? Well, well the sh- the shaft and rescue technology that they used in in. in uh, Chile and the, uh, the copper mine thing. What it was, was it was a capsule. So it was a metal capsule that they would go and sink down to the bottom. The miner would get in there, close the capsule, and then they would slowly pull them up through the shaft. They developed it and invented it in Shepton, but they couldn't use it because the shaft, the borehole was just too irregular. Okay. So what they did was they um, devised, uh, a, they used parachutes and they had uh, uh, over uh, coveralls, and they used this parachute that they would go and drag the men up through the, the shaft, a really tiny shaft. They were greased up. They had helmets and they had a walkie-talkie. And when Throne got to the top, he passed out. You know, Throne being 28 years old and just young, immature, impetuous. He passed out. Uh, Hank, uh, Davy Fallon... They gave him some some whiskey, so he's drinking some whiskey, and he's drunk coming up, and he's singing, uh, they'll be coming around the mountain when she comes, and they take him out, and he's like sort of grandstanding. But here's the thing. Davy fell on Toad Throne. He said, uh, Hank, when you get topside, keep your mouth shut. Don't tell them what we saw down here. And he was referring to the image of Pope John the Twenty Third and all, all kinds of other paranormal things. But as soon as the young Hank Throne got up there and they had two helicopters, so they took them one by one to the Hazleton General Hospital and the paparazzi was that were there and they kept on asking Throne all kinds of questions and he broke down fast and told them about seeing, you know, the stranger, you know, this uh, Pope John the 23rd and the stairways and just a whole lot of other paranormal uh, things that happened to them down in, in the pit. So uh, uh, that wasn't the game plan. Uh, uh, Davy Fallon didn't want to talk about that. He said, if we talk about that, they're going to think we're crazy and think we're nuts. But that's what the story was. And so immediately the world knew that they saw things down there. And the big one was Pope, the uh, apparition of Pope John the 23rd. Well, I I love that they kind of feel this guy, which he had just recently passed away, like a few months before that in June. So it's kind of interesting that he's sort of like this this guardian protector. I know it mentions that Felon was Catholic. Uh, the other guy was like nothing in particular. And, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, so it's kind of cool that he's he's seen this pope who was also like a really well loved liked pope, and yeah. but. Uh, as it goes on down there, parts of it that intrigued me even more was like, I felt like I was like reading about hollow earth theory or something because they start seeing uh, what like humans, like, like alien humanoids that had lights on their helmets, uh, like strange creatures. I, can you explain more of like the weird beings they saw? Well, I, I sort of, um, uh 
group the uh the, the humanoid creatures along with Pope John the 23rd. And uh, first of all, Pope John, the, as you said, Pope John the 23rd had died in June of 63. Shepton happened in August. In all three cases of the purported miracles of Pope John the 23rd, all three of them happened after he had died. Hmm. Uh, the other two were medical miracles. Uh, there were some people in Italy that had uh, stomach cancer, uh, fistulas, uh, inoperable, they were dying. This had progressed, you know, uh, horrifically. And uh, after seeing the vision of Pope John the Twenty-Third, or feeling a, a, a relic of his, uh, the the two nuns were cured. The doctors called it medical miracles. There was nothing else that you could call it. That's that's what it was. Um, so they also saw three humanoid creatures that they described as uh, looking like football players, uh, tanned, uh, maybe Roman-esque with sandals, you know, Roman-esque or Egyptian. And I believe, I mean, so we ask ourselves, we try to go put a name on it. What is this? You know, like Alan Hynek talked about high strangeness and yeah. low strangeness, you know, or close encounters of the first, second, third, and fourth kind. You know, he gave us a, a definition, a way to look at things. But... I think that with the, the uh, humanoids and Pope John the Twenty Third, they were either guardian angels or spirit guides or apparitions sent to let the miners know that they were going to be rescued. They were going to be safe. I mean, these uh, the humanoids were not threatening. They were not demonic. They seemed to be holding scrolls, and other researchers uh, believe that that's what that was. Now, one of the researchers thought that they were somehow men in black. That was really pretty preposterous, you know, to say that. But, <laughs> but, but um, I believe that they represented something good. And when you talk about, uh, when you talk about uh, apparitions or guardian angels, I think, I, I believe, I believe that we all have guardian angels. I believe that we're not alone on our journey, that we have, you know, guardian angels and also ancestors that accompany us, but they don't save us. They don't bring in the Calvary. All they do is give us a sign that, yes, you're going the right way. Yes, everything's going to be okay. Yes, you're going to be rescued. So that's what I believe happened in Shepton with uh, the, the vision of Pope John the 23rd. And again, if it is indeed a miracle, then when you take a look at the framework of a miracle, you know, uh, God works through people who have demonstrated uh, a strong faith and good works and piety, a life of devotion, a person that you would call, you would describe as being holy. And those are the people that are chosen for a miracle. And again, it wasn't that Pope John the 23rd performed a miracle, it was that God did something using him as a, as a channel. Mm -hmm. So again, this is my, you know, through a lot of research, through talking to a whole lot of uh, theologians, this is what I've come up with. And again, in this field, in the paranormal field, what we need to do is we need to find something like a working definition and say, this is what it is until something better comes along. So this is, uh, you know, this is what I believe has happened. But I think yeah. it's a good thing, a positive thing. And, uh, and uh, when Pope John Twenty-Third was canonized in 2014, Vatican scholars, Vatican academics said that Shepton was one of his miracles. Okay, I was just going to ask, that was my next question, if he ever if yeah. that, if that ever got recognized like by the church officially. Yeah, uh, one other thing too, I mean, if we're, if we're going to talk about the, the weird, the weirdness. So 2014, 
Pope John the Twenty Third was canonized, you know, uh, um, as, a, as 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 a holy uh, person, and uh, this was by uh, Pope Francis. But he decided to do a dual canonization, so he changed the rules. Instead of uh, these folks having to demonstrate two miracles, he just changed it up to one. But here's the thing: it was Pope John the Twenty Third. He was the one person that was canonized. The other one was Pope John Paul the Second. Now, Pope John Paul II was an exorcist, and not only that, he put, uh, convened a school of exorcism. There was something like uh, priests from 132 countries that came there to learn the rite of exorcism, the ancient rite. And because, and why? Because, uh, because the uh, the Pope uh, John Paul II believed that evil exists. And the devil wants us to think that he or she is just a myth, and uh, and uses that that are you know uh, uh, you know to to seduce us. But mm -hmm. um, this rite of exorcism is something that is even found in the in baptism. There's a uh, uh, a purging of the of the spirits, and when when we're being baptized. So this is something that's been uh, uh, you know been around for thousands of years, but. Uh, Pope John Paul II believed that we needed to go and reconvene it and put more emphasis on it. And that's in my book, Coal Region Hoodoo. I have uh, a lot of stuff there about um, uh, demonology and, and, and exorcism. And uh, just, that's, I think that's an interesting thought, too, what you just said. I, I've never heard that before. Uh, about uh, the baptism? Well, yeah. I mean, about, oh, yeah. about I mean, maybe uh, a very diluted exorcism. <laughs> That's a part of the right of, you know, that's yeah, a part good, of baptism. Good, good, good you know? way to put that. Good I mean, way to put that. I never thought about that. I mean, but it makes me think, I, I mean, our, because you, I mean, a lot of things you hear, especially baptism is reserved. I mean, and there's, I'm sure that, I know there's a lot of older people who, who get baptized, but I mean, I think the majority are, are younger folks. Uh, they're babies, very young kids. Yeah. And, yeah, yeah. you know, we have this idea that I know I've heard in my journey going along here is that, well, children are innocent. That's the innocence of the children. But maybe it makes me think about this idea and maybe I'm taking us out in the weeds and I'm sorry if I am. No, you're not. Uh, no. But, but that idea of this exorcism that may be part of baptism suggests to me that there, that we may be, I mean, maybe not, you know, evil, evil, but inherently we may have this, you know, have some type of evil in us and we have to have this exorcism done. And that's what part of baptism is. That just kind of made me think about that. It's not really a question. It's just more of a statement. Yeah. A couple of things about that, about the existence of evil. A couple of things. In my book, I talk about the Schmurl haunting, which was in northeastern Pennsylvania. And this was a typical poltergeist thing where the family was being harassed. I mean, they heard a uh, pig grunting and, and smells and, and profanity. Uh, Jack Schmerl claimed that he was raped by a female demon, a, a succubus. So all kinds of horrible things happened. Yeah. Uh, there was a guy named Father Treble who came there. He was from uh, uh, New York uh, and uh, St. Bonaventure uh, University. And he was a renowned exorcist, but he came down there and had to perform the rite of exorcism four times before he chased away the demons. Prior to that, Father Treboat had been to another haunting, and he couldn't get the job done. And it's in Coleridge and Hoodoo. I have his quote. But he said, some places are just evil. And what you need to do is you need to leave, take your, take your possessions, 
Don't say anything about what, what your plans are inside the house and then just leave because that's an, that's, it's an evil place that, you know, cannot be uh, sanctified, cannot be purged. So the other one, again, in Coleridge Hoodoo was St. Teresa of Avila. She was the 14th century Spanish mystic. And she said, and she spoke a lot about, she wrote a lot about evil. And she said that the devil loves to, to claim uh, men, of the, men and women of the cloth, people who have dedicated their lives, you know, uh, 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 priests and, uh, and uh, rabbis and, and, and nuns, you know, people who have dedicated their lives, you know, to, uh, you know to, to serving the Lord. The devil loves to get those people and take them down. It's almost like they get more points for that. So she talked about that back in the 14th century. Wow. And uh, I, you know, I um, wrote about St. Teresa of Avila only because of Shepton. And the Shepton miners claimed that they had out-of-body experiences. And here, St. Teresa of Avila claim that through prayer and meditation, we can reach states of ecstasy and rapture and something that she called flight of the soul, which is an actual out-of-body experience. And so those miners, uh, felon and throne, experienced that flight of the soul mm -hmm. where they rose up from the, uh, the pit and looked down and they could see the rescue team below and just, just crazy, crazy stuff. But, um, you know... Um, that you know so that that was part of it the uh the uh out of body experience by the shepton miners well with their out of body experiences and all of the paranormal uh phenomena that they're they're relating after the event i i know they started talking to reporters and i don't know if this is the first time their full story was printed but the story appears in fate magazine and i don't remember yeah. if that was 64 or 65 but around right. there and which Six which what one was it 64. 64. So, yeah, 64, yeah. Um, which is, I mean, it's, I don't know if they're still publishing it to this day, but for many, many decades, that was your go-to little paranormal source for all kinds of strange and unusual stories. Lots of stories coming in, like write-in stories, people's experiences. And I found it interesting that after that article was published, I'm sure they started getting a bunch of people like doubting the authenticity of their experiences while you guys were just down in a hole. So you're losing it. You're crazy. You know, you're having hallucinations. But then um, Fallon goes and asks for a polygraph test. Do you know, did he did he pass this? Yeah, he did. Um, so. You know, there, there, there's a, a, a parallel between what happened in Shepton and what happens to with people that see UFOs. You know, uh, back in the 50s and 60s, even in the 40s, uh, regular people would see UFOs. They would see apparitions, you know, things in the sky. And the scientists and the government would say, no, it's just marsh gas or yeah. reflections off of Venus or you're hallucinating or you're needy or you're mentally imbalanced or whatever. And the same thing with Shepton, that it was, uh, you know, it was, they were hallucinating. It, maybe it was a, a dual hallucination or a, a collective hallucination, or it was the result of drinking the sulfur water, uh, or it was sensory deprivation and all that. Um, the one guy from the Skeptical Inquirer did a lengthy article about my, my book on Shepton, and uh, it, it was a wonderful review, but he had one last thing. His conclusion, just like less than a paragraph, was that if you utilize 
Occam's razor. And Occam's razor, I believe, is sort of like a medieval uh, device, a philosophical philosophical device to look at something that, that is unexplainable. And with Occam's razor, you utilize the simplest definition. So with Shepton, it would be hallucinations, you know, sensory deprivation. Mm-hmm. However, I contend that you can do this. It's sort of like apples and oranges because you're talking about something that uh, looks like it was a, a miracle. There was something that was beyond, you know, it was of the paranormal. It was of the supernatural. It does not fit into into the scientific realm because we don't know, you know, how, how, how that works scientifically. So we call it, you know, the paranormal or the supernatural. And that's what they experienced. And, you know, uh, maybe skeptical inquirer could uh, easily, you know, uh, just say that conclude that it was a, uh, you know, that it was, uh, um, you know, hallucinations, but I disagree with them. And, uh, and again, use utilizing Occam's razor is maybe the most uh, pedestrian, uh, you know, uh, 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 arguments that that, uh, that anybody could make. So I disagreed with him, but he was very generous in, you know, citing Shepton, The Myth, Miracle, and Music as the definitive uh, book about Shepton. You know, there have been several books about Shepton. You know, um, Amber, you asked, why haven't people heard about Shepton? Yeah. Yeah, tell me. There's been something like three books. There's been documentaries. I mean, a number of documentaries um, I don't know. I mean, you would think that people would know about Shepton just like they know about uh, Kenneth Arnold and Area 51 and Roswell and everything else. I mean, it smacks of the paranormal. Yeah. And not only out of body, near death, after death experience, but also humanoid creatures yeah. and, you know, and uh, the Golden Cities and just all kinds of like really bizarre things. It's just like almost like there was a vortex there, a wormhole where all these paranormal things, these anomalies happened at the same place at the same time. I mean, well, that's basically what Shepton was. And and I think for, for thousands of years, people have gone underground just to seek out mystical experiences in caves or deliberately building things like a lot of the, the stone, uh, uh, the standing stones and stuff like in, in Europe kind of like cover like areas you go underground to like yeah, have yeah. that, that yeah. moment. And I know like, what was it? What was I don't remember what they are, and I should have looked it up. But I remember Stephen King wrote a book called The Tommy Knockers. Oh, Tommy Knockers, oh, right? Yeah, and it was yeah. about like an experience, like I believe in caves, and I don't yeah. remember what the Tommy Knockers were or what they do. But but that was yeah. also a legend that's been around. Are you familiar with that, Max? Do you remember what the yeah, Tommy you know, Knockers? Yeah, I've, I've heard that, and I think they're like uh, like little beasties. Yeah. You know, but, uh, but one thing that I wanted to say when we talk about underground civilizations and uh, the guy Richard Sharp Shaver. Yeah. Richard and I share a lot of commonality. Uh, Richard Sharp Shaver and Maxim Furick were both born in Berwick, Pennsylvania. So uh, I've been sort of educating the people of Berwick about Richard because nobody knows about him, just like Shepton. Nobody knows about Richard Sharp Shaver and what he did with Amazing Stories yeah. and Ray Palmer back in the 40s. But, you know, Ray um, was writing the Shaver mysteries as true accounts. And people believed him. And it was amazing because Richard Sharp Shaver was schizophrenic. He heard voices. And a lot of other people started to go and put these, have these groups, Shaver Mystery Clubs, and say, listen, I hear voices too. You know, so they sort of bought into what Shaver was saying. But I always felt that Shaver, who had been institutionalized in, um, it was in Michigan, 
and it starts with the P and I'm blocking. Pontiac Asylum? No. Uh, uh, institutionalized? Uh, pardon? You say institutionalized? Yeah, he was institutionalized. And, 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 Matoski, uh, is there? No. No, that's I, Traverse City. Yeah, no, it starts with the P. But anyway, um, he... Um, when he when he wrote about being captured and tortured by the uh, Daros, you know the, uh, yeah. the uh, yeah yeah the, the evil <laughs> robots, it was almost like he was symbolically or metaphorically, you know, uh, reaching out and 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 uh, castigating the mental health system. That back in the forties, what they did was, I mean, it was pretty torturous. It was barbaric, using heavy duty drugs like Milorel and Thorazine, and using shock treatment. Uh, more as a punitive device. Now, I want to say this about shock. You know, today in 2023, shock treatment is the treatment du jour for people that suffer from depression. You know, you're depressed. They give you the shock. You wipe out the recent memory, give the person some, some medication. And then through counseling, you come back on your feet and you start dealing with whatever it is that you were dealing with. But shock works and it is really a very effective uh, treatment, but back during uh, the days of Richard Sharp Shaver, it was uh, something that they would just use to subdue the patients only because shock was cheaper than medication. That's why they did it. It was oh, all wow. economics. Oh God! When yeah, you, I know. When you go into like the history of all, all of those asylums, because I've done my research on some of the ones in Michigan, and it is yeah. bonkers. Some oh, of the is, experience, yeah. like experiments that they would do on people. And, and you know, for some people, I, I know I always, I joke when I do some of my presentations, when I talk about one of the uh, asylums that's up in Traverse City, it's now been remodeled into condos and doctor's offices and all that. Oh, so it's kind of, yeah. it's kind of cool. Like it's a, it's a uh, Thomas Story Kirkbride building. So he was a well-known architect of asylums and he had this whole theory that beauty was therapy. So I feel like with him, you started seeing these places turn around to the point where we're not looking at some awful dungeon, even though, you know, people probably were, you know, mistreated and stuff to a certain extent. But we're, we're starting to see a turnaround where we're like, OK, if if these people with these problems are at least in a good environment, maybe this can help them a bit. And for some, we know, like, OK, even in, no matter how many pretty flowers you have or uh, nice wallpaper, it's not going to matter. But for some, when you look back at whatever reasons people could get checked into medical facilities like that it was like religious excitement or yeah, yeah. Uh, just it's it's kind of hilarious some of the things and for some i feel like it was probably like a bit of a spa if you just yeah. had to go in there for some stress for a couple weeks and if it was yeah, like yeah. a nice area where you could do some crafts and sit outside away yeah, from yeah. your family but well a lot of these institutions these sanitariums you know they were they were very bucolic they were just you know Beautiful, you know, especially with people that had money. Yeah. That go there. And also, and it's not the same, but even with inmates, with um, sort of lifetime inmates that just, you know, that just can't get out of the, the penal system, some of these guys like that order and structure. You know, yeah. when, they're, when they're free, when they go out. And uh, Charles Manson talked about this. I mean, he couldn't handle the freedom. He couldn't handle the freedom. So he, he did his best work when he was. Uh, in prison when he was behind bars. So, um, so um, but the, um, I, I had been um, interviewed on uh, exploring the bazaar and that was with the late Timothy Green Beck Beckley okay. and uh, Mr. UFO and yeah. Tim Schwartz, uh, Mr. Uh, Commander X. 
And they interviewed me about Shepton and also uh, a guy named Richard Toronto, who wrote War Over Lemuria. That was all about Richard Sharpshaver and the inner earth theory. And it was just an amazing uh, conversation going back and forth. And I've become friends with, um, with Richard Toronto since that time and Tim Schwartz. And um, Tim Beckley has left us. He passed away a couple years ago. But Tim befriended me and really opened up some doors, you know, as far as my, I don't know, my avocation as a paranormal, you know, researcher slash author. So, so uh, Timothy Green Beckley uh, was really a good friend and mentor, and I can't thank him enough. Uh, he, he's missed. He published an endless amount of cool I, stuff. I know, I know. I know. Yeah, just just amazing. Quite prolific. Yeah. So. Well, when we were talking about, you know, just have, you know, mentioning psychiatry and, yeah, and all those yeah. places, I want to I want to say a quote that you pulled out of your book, because when we're, we're talking about these guys that get out of the mind and people probably thinking they're crazy and, and just hallucinating and what they experienced wasn't true. Uh, you wrote that several psychiatrists from the University of Pennsylvania interviewed the miners after publishing the results in the American Journal of Psychiatry. They concluded that neither man exhibited evidence of psychosis or marked mental abnormality when examined. And yeah. I think that is fascinating. On top of the expert on death and dying, Dr. Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, I know, who interviewed I know. them. I mean, that's kind of a big, she's a big deal. And the fact that she felt that those two men were worth her time to talk to and felt that they could have even been kind of living proof of, of either the out-of-body or the afterlife experience, um, that's, that's amazing. There was a guy named Ed Conrad, and Ed was an old newspaper man. He called himself the truth dispenser. And I have a whole chapter in uh, Co-Region Hoodoo about Ed. But what he did was he, he um, took uh, Davy Fallon and Hank thrown around. He had them polygraphed, uh, notarized what they said, uh, lie detector, the, you know, the whole thing. And then he took them to some of these uh, experts. But one of them, he took them down to the University of Virginia to meet Dr. Bruce Grayson, who was an authority on near-death experiences. And then he took him down to see Elizabeth Kupler Ross, uh, who wrote on death and dying. She was one of the foremost uh, thinkers of the 20th century. And her death and dying was just a game changer. You know, uh, for those of us who lose a, a loved one, a lot of us will be angry. We negotiate with God. You know, bring, if you bring them back, I'll be good. I'll change my ways. And then finally, after twists and turns, we finally, some of us finally, we find acceptance. We just accept the fact that our loved one is gone. But Elizabeth Kubler-Ross did that, and she believed that Shepton was an example of life after death. And she was talking about Pope John the Twenty-Third, who died in June and manifested himself in uh, August of sixty-three. A prime example of life after death. And his M.O., his modus operandi, was the same in all three cases of the, his purported miracles. He would just be there uh, in the background with his arms folded, giving the people a sign of comfort, of peace, you know, a sign that just maybe you're going to be okay, you're going to be rescued. So that was what he did. He didn't, didn't jump up and down and do a dance or take a shovel and, you know, help them out of there. And, um, and, and I believe that's the way it is. I mean, I believe that with guardian angels, 
uh, in our lives. I mean, they don't save us, but they give us strength. They give us courage to save ourselves. So they, you know, uh, I think that's an important thing to, uh, you know, to note. Well, and when it comes to like doing anything possible to survive in these scenarios, one of the rumors that has been probably one of the more shocking ones that went around about this mining disaster Mm -hmm. and the three men, of course, the one guy that didn't make it, there was always rumors of cannibalizing, like, Lewis. We alluded to this earlier. Now, from what I understand, when the mine collapsed, the, the, the the two guys were on one side and Lewis was on the other, and whether he got injured to the point where he didn't live long or there was so much rubble they couldn't even scream and yell and communicate. I, I mean, did the other two guys say how they felt they lost the other one during during the disaster? Well, first of all, you know, with um, courage and hoodoo, hoodoo can be both a blessing and a curse. Sure. You know, and you have to ask yourself, why was it that two of the miners received the blessing and they were rescued, and the other miner received the curse where we don't even know what happened to him. Yeah. You know, I mean, some people think he was cannibalized, but we don't know. Uh, what I think happened, <clears throat> and again, every time I do a presentation, I mean, everybody comes up and they have their own theory about what happened to Louis Bova. I mean, everybody. But I think what happened was when the um, uh, early that Tuesday morning, they filled up the buggy with coal, they sent it to the top, the guy there, the foreman, was George Walker. So he tipped it, sent it back down, and as the buggy was coming back down, that's when the mine collapsed. And um, so I think what happened was that you had, you know, hundreds of thousands of tons of rock and coal and timber coming down between Felon and Throne, who probably jumped into a, a monkey shaft, a little place where they might keep food and, and tools and Louis Bova on the other side. Now, Felon claimed that he talked to Louis Bova at that point, and uh, after the collapse, collapse has stopped, and uh, Louis Bova claimed that he broke his, his leg, oh. and then they spoke with him, and then that was it. So that's what Felon said. But uh, when the uh, guys were rescued, they sent somebody back down into that shaft to look around, and there were no... Uh, no blood, no bones, no uh, nothing, nothing to yeah. indicate that anything had happened. So um, the Chicago Daily News said that in coal mining lore that the shortest guy would, would, would always get it. He would be, be the one to be cannibalized. And in this oh case, it was Louis Bova. And huh. hang, uh, Dave Fallon said only evil men would pose such a question, you know, when they asked right. him to cannibalize your mate. He said only evil men would would say that. So um, I, you know, Throne and Felon were already dead when I was working on the book, but I knew a guy, he was a business guy from Har- from Hazleton, and he worked with uh, with uh, Davy Felon. And he would ask, and I wanted to interview this guy. He said I could interview him, but he wanted to remain anonymous because of his position. He's a pretty successful business guy. Um, so he would ask Davy Fallon, did this happen? Did you actually see that? I mean, all this. And Davy told him the truth. I mean, they, they talked about cannibalism and seeing the one thing that Davy Fallon talked about. There were golden uh, stairwells. He said, Lead, this is in pure uh, darkness. They would see these golden stairwells. And Davy Fallon said they had ancestors there, his family members. He could recognize some of them. And the other ones, 
he just knew that they were his 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 family members, that his ancestors. So they were there, almost sort of like almost like a near death yeah. type of experience. So um, he never wavered from from that from that narrative. And uh, and can you imagine though, when after they were rescued, them, you talked about the Fate magazine. That was sixty four. Evidently, the Associated Press had uh, exclusive rights to their story. So they probably had him sign a contract for a year and did all these exclusive you know, interviews with him, paid him probably a little bit of money. And then in 64, after that contract was up, that's when um, the guy from Hazleton uh, interviewed them and did, did the article for Fate. And I had that article. So, uh, And they talked about the Pope. They talked about the humanoid creatures. I mean, they, they described the humanoid creatures pretty much like Egyptians or Roman warriors. So, you know, that was pretty amazing. But um, um, an amazing story on so many different levels. I wanted to call it the Shepton Convergence, uh, you know, a convergence of, of, of uh themes, paranormal themes, but I didn't think anybody would know what that meant. So, <laughs> so the working title on the back is the Shepton mythology, but you know, it's, it's, it's just like a J. Allen Hynek's high strangeness. There's a whole oh, lot yeah. of high strangeness here, a whole lot. So, well, before his death, uh, David Fellon said that there were some things that he never wanted to uh, absolutely discuss with the media. Then he took secrets to his grave. Did you, did you ever speculate what those secrets could have been? Yeah, I'm thinking, uh, I don't think it was about cannibalism. I don't think it was something that dark. I think that uh, Davy Fallon experienced something holy, something profound. And it was something that was sacred and personal. It was yeah, intimate. It was yeah. between him and his, his higher power. And with that, when something like that happens, you know, the rest of the world does not need to know what that is. I right. mean, that is your your wonderful uh, secret, you know, your, uh, your, your covenant with your higher power. So I don't, th I think that's what it was. I just think he was keeping, you know, that sacred and uh, you know, I mean, they asked every other question there may be, okay, let's take a pause. There may be a train coming past my house right now. That may. Oh, <laughs> I hear it. Here. I hear oh, yeah. it. I like uh, that's fine. I like we'll it. Leave, I will like, leave that's that in. Cool. I like that. <laughs> I live next to train tracks. So. No, that's and, fine. In a little shack, in a little shack. <laughs> dog. Well, if anyone picks up the book Cool Region Hoodoo Paranormal Tales from Inside the Pit, they're going to get a whole bunch of information other Man. than what we talked about tonight. Uh, Pennsylvania is a fascinating state with lots of stuff. I have a lot of books on Pennsylvania, um, even like the the hex doctors and powwows and like some of the yeah. weird stuff that went on in the early 19th century. Um, or early 20th century with those guys. Um, it, there's so much fun stuff to read in this book. And plus the way you wrote it, I feel like it's kind of like how I look up things. Like if I read one story, I go, well, wait, I got to look this up. So then I put the book down and then I end up on a rabbit hole going down three other things. And I feel like you did the rabbit hole for me. So oh, yeah. <laughs> I can just like go and go, oh, no, he already brings that up. Okay. Yeah. Oh, next thing. Oh, yep. He's bringing that part up. Yeah, so yeah. it's a yeah. really cool book. Yeah. Um, I, I appreciate that. Yeah. I think I wrote it. I made it. I think it was, I think it's well researched. Like, you know, there's over 400 references to books, oh, sure. magazine articles and personal interviews like Ed and Lorraine Warren. Oh, yeah. You know, um, so, so we had that plus, um, I think that I wrote it in, in a manner that it's, it's accessible 
and readable. And I think I was able to take a complex issue and sort of like tone it down a bit and make it more understandable. So, um, you know, I mean, at least this is what people are telling me that that have read the book. But oh, if well. anybody is, you know, curious enough uh, and interested enough and excited enough to read Cole Region Hoodoo, uh, please read that. But also, if you would put an uh, put a review on Amazon or Goodreads. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, that yeah. helps yeah. big time out there. I it, know. I, it really does. It, it really does. If you, And there's so many people that they, they talk about how much they love a book and they don't do those reviews, which help things so much with like the algorithms out there on the Internet. And, you know, you'll get that one person that wants to write a review for everything they hate, you know, and they're the ones that go out there and end up slamming a review down. So if you love something, yeah. whether it's this book or anything else out there, go go leave some positive reviews for all your fellow uh, creators out spread there. Some, spread some good yeah. news. Yeah, but, right? but, even, but even if you don't like it, you know, let me know why you don't. You know? <laughs> Although, you know, I mean, Privately. I would hope that, <laughs> Privately. I would hope, you know, people. People listening to your podcast, I mean, they're they're true believers, you know, but I'm sure there's a lot of people that think that podcasts like this are somehow dark or evil or oh, satanic sure. or whatever. You know, I mean, these are the uneducated people that just don't don't get it. Yeah. And Cool Region Hoodoo takes the paranormal and blends it with the spiritual and tries to push it towards the scientific, just trying to find a an explanation. So I was really, more than anything else, I was really uh, pleased that the spiritual elements of the book turned out like they did. You know, St. Teresa of Avila, yeah. uh, Pope John the Twenty Third, you know, Father Trebolt, you know, the, the Exorcist. I mean, there's some really exciting people in the book, you know, and they're, they're you know, they're people of the cloth. They're people that have dedicated their lives to, a, you know, to, to a life of holiness. So, uh, you know, that's not boring. That's like, that's exciting. You know, right. these are exciting individuals. The topics within the realm of the paranormal are endless. So we thank you, Maxim, for taking the time to spend some time with us, talk about some high strangeness, yeah. share a story that I guarantee like 99% of our listeners have probably never this heard. Is so, uh, we didn't now hear. they're going to go probably until, look up even more. They're probably yeah. going to go pick up this book, go pick up your other book. Um, check out the documentaries that we talked about like earlier, even with like the coal miners or the, the, the guys from South America. Uh-huh. But anyway, uh, we thank you so much. We're going to have all of your info, your links, because I know you can. Get, I got the book from Amazon, so I mm-hmm. know you can go grab a copy from there. It's at it's at your door in a few days. Yeah. Um, and we know we can have you back on anytime to talk about a lot more because there was a lot more on our list that you gave us for topics, including. Why did I write two chapters on Bigfoot? Like two different chapters. Oh, yeah. So I was like, I, I'm not even going to go there yet because then we'll end up having a two-hour show. So like, we're just going to have to have you back on to talk more about oh, like let's do that, more yeah. weird Pennsylvania yeah. for sure. Love to talk to you again. Yeah. Or, sure. or even if, if you have any interest, we could talk about the uh, Philadelphia experiment oh. because 2023 is the 80-year anniversary oh. of that. Oh wow! And oh. Um, yeah, and as a former uh, Navy guy, I mean, I have a real interest in the story and. Uh, and also, I have a personal connection to the story, too. So that's, Well, um, that's one of Scott's favorite topics. I've so. been a little disconnected from it for a while. So this is actually, I'm glad, I'm glad, even while we won't get into it, I'm glad you mentioned that it's the 80th anniversary. Yeah. yeah I'm going to probably end up diving into this thing again now. And so next, a- time, next time we get together, uh, Maxim, I'll be well-armed to have this conversation, hopefully. Yeah, and so I think maybe, <laughs> Maxim, you're going to be on here sooner than later. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Hey, thanks, guys. I thanks really again. appreciate thank it. Thank so, you. And good luck with Ghostly Talk. Thank I hope you. Thank you. Any more episodes. Ghostly Talk. <laughs> <laughs>